This is Brian Kane with the Brian Kane Mental Performance Mastery Podcast. And today, our guest, one of my mentors, a friends, a legend in the field of mental performance coaching and sports psychology. If you've listened to this podcast for any length of time, or if you've ever heard me speak, you have probably heard of and are very familiar with the work of today's guest. Dr. Rob Gilbert is the creator of Success Hotline, a professor at Montclair State in New Jersey. References to his Success Hotline are common among the athletes who are our guests. And I think the reason why Success Hotline is so popular is that everyone from athletes to coaches to CEOs loves how simple and concise the messages are but the power of their inspiration to listeners and the strategies to equip them with the knowledge and insights to be successful, whether it's in leadership, motivation, overcoming adversity, or pursuing your best self, Success Hotline is a staple in the daily routines to the listeners to our podcast. That number, 973-743-4690. I've called ever since I heard Dr. Gilbert speak at a leadership conference in Vermont of March of 2006 that changed my life. And today, for the first time, definitely not the last time, I'm thrilled and honored to welcome Dr. Rob Gilbert to the podcast. Dr. Gilbert, thank you for being with us. Thank you. First of all, would you share with our listeners kind of where did this concept of success hotline come from? What's the background on that? Well, um, when I was in graduate school, I was a wrestling coach. I was a high school wrestling coach. And then I get a job as a college professor. And um, something weird happened. Um, you know, when I was, I was, you know, crazy like you, I, I, uh, the kids worked out five days a week, that would be a bad week. They'd work six, seven days a week, double sessions. I was nuts. And, um, and then I get to graduate school when I'm teaching and I see my students once a week, you know, what's going to happen once a week, nothing's going to happen once a week. So I say, how could I be with my students every day, even though I see them once a week? So I said, what if I leave a phone message, you know? So this was 1992. As a matter of fact, it was January 22nd, 1992, the beginning of the uh, spring semester. And I told my class, my graduate students, I said, okay, I'm going to leave a message every day on this phone line. And I want you to call in and you're responsible for the information. And, um, you know, a week is, a uh, semester is 14 weeks. Uh, 14 times seven is 98. So I said, I'll leave like 98 messages. And then at the end of the semester, you're done. And, and I'm done. I mean, I had no interest at all or no thought at all. I I just do it for one semester. And then, and I never publicized it. And then one student told somebody else and somebody told somebody, by the end of the semester, I had so many people calling and it was so much fun that since January 22nd, 1992, I've I've never done, I've never not done it. And um, I think today's message is 10,709, if I remember correctly. So, um, you know, people think, um, oh, isn't that nice of you? How much is it, you know, how much money, the, the most common question is, how much money do I make from it? It costs me almost $1,000 a month to do it. <laughs> I'm not making any money from it. I had a really good deal with AT and, uh, with uh, Verizon. I had a really good deal and, you know, I was paying maybe, I don't know, 50 or $75 a month. And then they changed everything and and now I had to get another service. Every single person that calls me, I pay a, a penny and a half for every minute they listen to Success Hotline. So I do not make any money. Do not make any money. But I'm, it, it's it's the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. Really, 
you know, it's not what, so here's the saying, it's not what I get, get from it. It's what I became by it. You know, I mean, if I'm a good storyteller, it's because of the success hotline. If I'm a good speaker, it's because of the success hotline. If I'm smart, it's because of the success hotline, because every single day I'm looking for a great story, a great quote, a great idea, and I'm always thinking about it. So it's, it's my most fun thing and the most benefit. It's like, it's like my mental workout every day. So it's, it's a blessing. You know, it's, it's not a problem. It's a blessing. And, you know, if any other question is, how do you do it every day? Well, I'm sure you'd agree with uh, your triathlon training, Brian, that, you know, every day you do something every day, discipline, 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 discipline. Then you cross a magic bridge and discipline becomes desire. Hmm. I mean, it doesn't even occur to me to miss a day. It would be impossible for me to miss a day. I mean, you know, that would be like saying, okay, go tomorrow without breathing. You know, it's, it's just, it's just part of my life. So that's the whole thing. You know, and you obviously have a PhD in sports psychology. You've been a professor of sports psychology for a long time. And I think one of the pieces of your story that I find so fascinating is that you had to go to UMass Amherst a couple times because it wasn't, it didn't, didn't work out for you the first time. Would you elaborate a little bit on that? Well, I think what you're referring to is I flunked out of school. Yes. So um, let's, let's put everything Brian and I are going to talk about today has to do with one thing. You have the ability and all you're lacking is a strategy. All you're lacking is a strategy. Anybody could do anything. Brian and I, I I'm going to talk for you, Brian. You interrupt if I'm overstepping my boundaries. But we don't believe in talent. We believe in training. And you could be trained to do anything. And I mean anything. You could be trained to do anything. So one of my um, assignments in my sports psychology class, the second or third week, is I showed them a video of, of a Shrita Furman. A Shrita Furman uh, lives in Jamaica, Queens. And he holds the Guinness Book of World Record for holding the most Guinness Book of World Record records. He has set and holds more world records than anything. Ashrita Furman, when he was in high school, he flunked phys ed. He is not an athlete. He's a meditator. But he has learned the strategies of how to do all these crazy things. Jungle, uh, juggle underwater, somersault for like 12 hours. I mean, he does unbelievable things. So um, the whole thing is, I, I believe anybody could be trained to do anything. So um, I'm 73 years old, and nobody here listening to this will remember this. But when I was a senior in high school, uh, 1964, I went to a really good high school, Boston Latin School. And it used to be that anybody from Boston Latin that applied to UMass Amherst got in. But I was in the year of the baby boomers. I was the first year of the baby boomers. And all of a sudden, like maybe one out of three kids from Boston Latin got in. Nobody got in. And I was number 300 out of 322 in my class. I was in the bottom 5%. I mean, the bottom 5%. Not the top five. Don't think you're, you're talking to a smart guy here today. So I'm in the bottom of the class, and nobody's getting into UMass. And UMass is a great school, and it's cheap, you know? And my parents wanted me to go there. And I get in. I get into UMass. And I use one critical strategy. Now, I'm from the city. I, live, I grew up right by Fenway Park. And on the application, well before computers, who had said, what college are you applying to? Everybody from Boston Latin put College of Business or College of Liberal Arts. I said, College of Agriculture. I applied to the College of Agriculture and I got in. Of course, when I went to summer orientation, I switched to liberal arts, but I'm saying that's a strategy, you know? 
So then I go to school and I don't do 12. As a matter of fact, I failed 10 courses, 10 three credit courses. Now, I don't know if you know this about college now, Brian. Nowadays, if you get below a C in a class, you could retake the class. So if you get a D or an F, you could retake the class and it wipes out the D or the F. Not in the good old days. You know, I graduated with a 1.92 grade point average. Nowadays, you need a 2.0. So I flunked out of school in my second semester junior year. I have 30 credits worth of F, so I'm a psychology major. And then I have three semesters left. They, I have three semesters left to get a 1.42 up to a 1.8. I'm taking, um, I'm trying to take every easy class I can. Introduction to film, introduction to art, introduction to rec recreation, introduction, if said introduction, I was there. And I took introduction to physical education. Now this is called serendipity. What are the chances that a senior psychology major taking a class for first semester freshman phys ed majors it just happened that the person teaching the class was just recruited to UMass from the University of Texas, Dr. Walter Kroll, and he was one of the founders of the field of sports psychology. Now, what are the chances of that happening? I'm taking the class just so I could get an A, and he gets to know me through the class, and one day he speaks to me after class. He said, uh, you know, he said something nobody else ever said. He said, you, you know, you're a really good student. I said, Dr. Kroll, you have to realize everybody here is a freshman. I'm a senior. Everybody has a phys ed major. He said, no, no, no. There's something special about you. He said, why don't you apply to our graduate program? I said, Dr. Kroll, I don't want you to know this about me. I, I might not graduate. You know, I'm, I'm taking this class to graduate, not to get into graduate school. I just want to graduate. He said, you graduate and you come and see me. We'll take care of everything else. Because he was the king of the department. He, he, was, he was a superstar. And I wasn't that great a graduate student either. It only took me 10 years to get my PhD but he was my mentor. And then it comes time to apply for jobs. And I don't have a, you know, I have a horrible undergraduate career. The only reason I graduated uh, with a PhD is because every time I was doing lousy in a course, I, I dropped the class. And then every job I apply for, Cal State LA, uh, Columbia College, University of Maine, Montclair State, there's another one. I got, I got every job I applied for. I said, and I said, Dr. Kroll, how am I getting these jobs? He said, you don't know how to play the game. I said, what do you mean? He said, you're not getting the job because of you. You're getting the job because of me. You know, sort of like if you're one of Bill Belichick's assistants. So I've been very, very fortunate, very, very blessed. And it's almost like I was destined to meet Dr. Kroll. I mean, you know, I just like you met me. I met Dr. Kroll. I mean, when he said sports psychology, nobody in the world had said the word sports psychology, you know. So it's just been amazing. In your, in your career, yeah. oh, go ahead, please. And then my students say, well, wait a second. Um, if, if you got into Montclair State and um, if you had such awful undergraduate grades, how did, they, how, did they allow, how did they hire you? I said, well, very simple. I never sent them my grades. You know, after a while, they, they request the grades over and over and over, and somebody all of a sudden forgets, and they've never seen my undergraduate grades. So that's another strategy, you know? <laughs> in, your career, in your time in the field of sports psychology, yeah. how have you seen, like, the landscape of sports psychology change from when you got started kind of to where it is now? Well, first of all, I'm not a good person. You know, the first couple of years, I went to all the conferences, 
and I realize I don't fit in. You know, I'm not, you know, I'm more like you than I am a professor. I'm not a researcher. I teach my graduate classes called applied sports psychology. I'm into application. I'm not into research. I mean, I'm, I'm not into the laboratory stuff. Um, that's what my graduate program was all about. And I realized that I wanted to be a teacher, teacher, not a researcher, teacher. And when I came to Montclair State, they wanted teacher, teachers. Now they want researcher, teachers. So I'm sort of like on, not on the good side of the fence there. But in terms of sports psychology, here's my answer to your question. Um, make believe it's like early 1970s. And, um, you know, and I'm speaking to Brian Kane, young Brian Kane. I say, Brian, what do you, you know, how old were you in 1972, Brian? I was uh, negative six. I was born oh, so. in 78. So we'll, 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 make, we'll make believe. Sure. And I said, Brian, what do you want to do when you grow up? Oh, I want to be a strength coach. In 1972, a what? There were, you know, I want to be a trainer. Oh, you want to work with horses? <laughs> right now, I think sports psychology is way back where strength training was way back then. I mean, nobody even knew about it. I mean, you know about baseball. They told you not, not to even lift weights. Okay, here's a trivia question for you. Who was the first, I'll give you a hint. Who was the first Red Sox player, but the first major league player, really to get into personal, he had a personal trainer in the offseason, and he had such spectacular results, this was in the 70s, that everybody else started getting into it. Do you remember who? I would say Tom Seaver. No, Red Sox player, Red Sox. Mm. 70s. Um, Yastrzemski? Yes, exactly. So Kyle Yastrzemski, who took over for Williams, by the way, who was a really, really good hitter, but he wasn't a power hitter. And then in the offseason, he started lifting weights. You don't lift weights. When's the last time you heard the term muscle bound? You know, you get muscle bound, you know? Oh, yeah. And he came back. I don't know if he won the Triple Crown the next year, but he had a spit. The Red Sox made it to the World Series. I think it was about 70. Uh, no, no, this is the late 60s. It was about 67, I think. And um, and so, so that's why I think sports psychology is, I mean, we need full-time people. You know, we need not only sports psychologists, like sports psychology, like the way Brian and I approach it, we assume normalcy and we think if you're normal, we could help you get to super normal. But we need a lot of people that are working with people that are below normal. You know, kids that are depressed, kids that are suicidal. I mean, read the book, What, Will Matt, uh, what Made Maddie Run, if you really want to get depressed. It's an unbelievable book. And so if we have normalcy here and super normalcy here and below normalcy here, so the psychologists, the trained psychologists, which I am not, I am not a licensed psychologist. If anybody comes to me and I think there's, you know, something clinically wrong with them, I don't, I don't touch them. But if somebody comes to me and they say, well, I just get a little nervous or, you know, I choke when I'm, you know, being recruited or something, I, I could, I could deal with that. But I'm really interested in people who want to do something outrageous, you know? Like, you know, like Wim Hof, you know, I want to climb Mount Kilimanjaro or, or Mount Everest in my shorts, you know, something outrageous. So I don't think sports psychology is really even begun. You know, I, I don't think, you know, we're still in the, the apparatus. We're still into the, you know, which who's a better, you know, a free weights better than machines, uh, you know, uh, the mind is where the power is. That's where the real power is. And forget about sports psychology. What about healing? 
So that's for years and years and years. Every one of my students used to read a book called The Anatomy of Illness as Perceived by the Patient. Anatomy of, the Anatomy of an Illness Perceived by the Patient. I think this is in the 1960s. Norman Cousins was a big-time, well-respected journalist. Big-time. And he and his wife, he had to do a project in Russia. So he and his wife went to Russia. And he came back, and he was deathly ill. I mean, in Russia, I guess his motel or hotel was near where there were some factory and some fumes. Well, his chances of recovery were 199, or his chance of dying were 199 out of 200. He was on the way up. He has a choice. You could either live with the pain, or we could drug you up and you'll be unconscious. He said, well, that's not a choice. So he's in the hospital, and one day, anybody my age would know this name, Alan Funt. Does that name mean anything to you? Comedian? Well, uh, his daughter is, but Alan Funt is um, started Candy Camera. And Candy Camera is where they have a camera, and, you know, like the famous one was the mailbox would talk to you, and somebody would put a, a letter in the mailbox and thank you and all that. So anyway, Norman Cousins' friend, Alan Funt, comes to him. He sets up, this is in the 60s, he sets up a projector in a screen, and he shows Norman some Three Stooges, Marx Brothers, and Candy Camera footage. And of course, this went on for half an hour before the nurses got the guy, well, you can't do this in a hospital. So they get his buddy, Alan Funt, out of there, and what do you think Norman Cousins finds out? Hey, I'm not in pain. Hmm. I, I feel all right. So a half an hour of laughing gave him a few minutes of pain, re pain free relief. He checks out of the hospital, checks into the motel, gets in touch with Funt, get me more footage, get me more movies, get me a projector, get me a screen, and he cured himself. That's mm. what the movie's about. And not only did he come up with a book, he started the field called Psychoneuroimmunology, Psycho Mind, Neuro, 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 uh, Nervous System, and Immunology. You could think yourself well. But you could also think yourself sick, like psychosomatic disease, psychosomatic illness. Well, if there's psychosomatic illness, it must be psychosomatic health, psycho mind, somatic body. So that's where it's going, you know. Um, so the Christian science people are onto something. You know, there's something to this stuff. And that's what's exciting. You know, the exciting thing for me is not doing some study on you know, who gets uh, more nervous, boy athletes or girl athletes or something. The, the thing is, you know, do you want to change the world? Do you want to do something outrageous? No, I want to win. No, I don't. I, who cares if you want to win? Winning, that's such a, a horrible goal. I want to win. Give me a break. How about giving a full effort? So can we play a game with everybody? Yes. So I want everybody to make believe um, that you have just started your tryouts for the Navy SEALs. Not that I know anything about the Navy SEALs, but make believe you went through three or four days of the most severe physical testing you've ever gone through in your life. And um, you crushed it, you know? You Brian caned it, you were over the top, you were number one in the class, whether it's pull-ups, sit-ups, running in the sand, underwater, anything, you did it. Now they say, well, Brian, you did a great job. There's only one test, you have to take the psychological test. You say, well, I'm all over this. So you ready to take the test? Oh, well, you know what we're going to do? We're going to bring in Ironman world champion, Jason Fowler, to this call. And uh, Jason is going to participate in this as well. So Jason, if you want to come into the call here, welcome to the Dr. Rob Gilbert podcast, my friend. I'm happy to be here. Awesome. Let's play the game. Okay. So both of you guys, take a pen, piece of paper, 
Very simple test. So what I want you to do when I say go is draw as many triangles as you can. Is don't, Brian, you're cheating. You are cheating, Brian. You, are, you started, you know? So could you make them, my students say, well, should I make them big or little? I say, well, if you want to draw as many as you can, don't make them big, you know? Okay, so you all said, Jason, you all said, Brian? Yeah. So ready, on your mark, get set, go. Ten seconds left. Five, four, three, two, one, stop. Okay, now count how many triangles he did. How many you get, Jason? 16. Good. That's a good score. How many you get, Brian? Uh, well, I, I'm not exactly sure that would meet the criteria of a triangle. It looks more like a circle to me, but I'm going to say 20. 20. Okay. What do you mean a triangle looks like a circle? Well, I mean, it's, I, I got a little sloppy with my straight line triangle, so it looks more like a half moon. There are three lines, I say. So I said, um, wow. I said, I, I hate to tell you guys this, but um, you, you got above average scores. I'm not saying you're not above average, but to pass the Navy SEALs, this is painful for me to tell you. The minimal score is 80. 80. Yeah, 80. Okay, if you're listening to this podcast, stop, press pause, and do this exercise. If you're listening to this on the run, if you're listening to this in the car, press pause, do this exercise, see how many you get, see if you can compete with us, and then come back on. Yeah. And there's no trick. Just draw as many trials as you can. So, mm -hmm. uh, but Jason, you did something tricky. What's yours? So I only did two lines. It's, instead of doing three lines, I did two, and I just attached them. You didn't say you couldn't attach it, so I just... Yeah, that's pretty. Well, let's see yours, Brian. That's embarrassing. Wait a second. It's making stars. That's right. That is the answer. Nice. That is the answer. So, Brian, how many did you say you got? 20. No, you got 100. Because... You're an insightful genius because look at the star. In each star, there are five triangles. There are five triangles. So, Brian, I don't know how you figured that out. Nobody's ever figured it out before. So this is the secret. So usually <laughs> when I draw the story out, you know, Brian's all upset. He only got 20. I said, well, wait, wait, wait. We can help you out. There's this wacko professor at Montclair State. And his specialty is drawing triangles quickly. He's helped a lot of people get in the Navy SEALs. So then you come to my office and you tell me this story that, oh, you've been training your whole life. This is all you wanted. And you only got 20. You have to get 80. And I said, well, can you draw a five-pointed star? And I said, yeah. Okay, all you have to do is draw one a second for 20 seconds. Do you see what I'm saying? So this yeah. is a metaphor. So most people are living life, you know, drawing triangles. We got to think about drawing stars. What I'm saying, and help me out with this, we're not talking about improvement. I mean, what could be more boring than talking about improvement? My students come to me and they say, well, you know, I got to be my, I got to be plus this semester. I want to get an A. I feel like saying, you think I care? <laughs> you know, a B plus or an A? I really don't care. I want you to change the world and you want an A. So now let's think, when you went from an old fashioned typewriter to an electric type liner, like the IBM Selectric. That was unbelievable. 
That was an improvement. Word processing is a breakthrough. So help me out. Think of things that were improvements. Like in sports, um, there is only one true genius living today in sports. Now, what is a genius? A genius is a person who's changed the most number of people in the most powerful way for the longest period of time. So the genius is named Dick Fosbury. Up until Dick Fosbury, people were hurtling over the high jump bar. And then they had the Texas roll where you jump off of one foot with your stomach down. Then Fosbury, who was an average high school high jumper, all of a sudden had this insight, just like Brian did, of going over head and neck first and getting his belly up in the air. And it was called the Fosbury flop. The reason he's considered the genius is because ever since him, every gold medalist in Olympic high jump has used the Fosbury flop. Hmm. So what I'm saying is Fosbury, he didn't draw a triangle. He changed everything. He drew a five-pointed star. So could you think of something that went from, you know, like, Going from a, a 70 second, 77 record to a 45 record to a 33 record was an improvement. Uh, but going to, you know, going to a, a CD is like a breakthrough. So think of something. What's the difference between improvement and breakthrough? I would say like the, 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 the house telephone and a payphone to a cell phone would be a breakthrough. Exactly. Yeah. If you remember a payphone, you put money in, and a cell phone, a cell phone, a breakthrough is something you can't even imagine. Hmm. You can imagine having, you remember the rotary phones, Brian? Do you oh, remember? Yeah. yeah. So going from rotary phone to touchstone, wow. But going to what we have now, that's unbelievable. So I, I like thinking about that, like taking um, a boat trip from the United States to Europe, and then you have a bigger boat, and a bigger boat, and a bigger boat. That's an improvement. Taking a plane? Are you kidding me? That's a breakthrough. A plane is a breakthrough. So the reason I'm so, Jason, do you have one, a difference between improvement and breakthrough? Uh, yeah, actually, um, in, um, in wheelchairs, they used to literally, the original wheelchair was like basically a folding lawn chair yeah. with little tiny wheels that you couldn't even push yourself. So being able to, to go to the wheelchair that we have today in the last 20 years or so, where you can push yourself. You can imagine having, being able to push around someone else yeah. pushing you yeah. around. So that's for me as a breakthrough. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. You know, I'm sure. And uh, since we're talking about so much immunity and drugs, I mean, you know, some, some drugs like um, antibiotics were a breakthrough, you know? So when I'm challenging the people out uh, listening to us, is don't think about improvement. Don't spend all your time trying about how to run one-tenth of a second faster. How about running two seconds faster? Then you have to change the game. You have to say, what can I do, you know? Um, and we're at the stage right now, especially in terms of training the body, that we know what's better, you know? What's better, um, you know, Peloton or Nordic track for these in-home things? You know, what's better... Free weights or um, machines, but we're not at the stage of best. What would be what would be the ultimate best workout? What is the best diet? Nobody knows the best diet. We know the better diet. If everybody knew, if there were one best, if there were one best um, diet, everybody would be on it. If there were one best way to cure cancer, but there are very few bests. As a matter of fact, there aren't. You know, I think uh, Fosbury 
maybe has the best way to do the high jump. But most people, so my students, I challenged them. I said, okay, here's what I want you to do this semester. Either I want you to set a Guinness Book of World Record records, or I want you to become famous forever, famous forever, and rich and famous forever. And, and uh, then they say, well, what could I do to become rich and famous forever in the area of sports? I say, invent a new sport. Why don't you invent a new sport? And then they say, all the sports have been invented. No, they haven't. About 30 or 40 years ago, right near where I lived in New Jersey, in South Orange, New Jersey, at Columbia High School, there was a spring day, and the phys ed teacher gave out some frisbees. He said, just go on the field and play frisbee. That day, they invented the game Ultimate Frisbee. That's a breakthrough. They invented a game. They invented a new game. So the best game has not been invented yet. What's the best game? Football. No, the best game hasn't been invented yet. The best strength training routine has not been invented yet. You know, the better ones have, but not the best. And what are the chances of you aiming for best and then coming up with something spectacular, you know? And then my students say, well, how do I invent a new game? It's like, how do you write a breakthrough book like uh, the Harry Potter books? I say, here's what you do. This is going to get a little weird, Brian, okay? Perfect. You get a notebook because here's my feeling. All the great ideas are traveling in the universe. They're all there. And how come you've never had a great idea? Because the great ideas don't know where to find you. So what you want to do is have a notebook. And every day you want to be at the same place at the same time with your old notebook open in a pen doing nothing. Just be a blank slate and just wait for the great ideas to show up. Don't make them, don't, and we'll talk about this later, the difference between making and letting, because you can't make them show up, you can let them show up. So have an open mind, and I don't know if it would take a day, a week, a month, or a year, but the great ideas will show up, and you start writing them down, and they won't be all great. You only need one great idea. You only need one sport, you know? So invent a new sport, figure out a way to become a world record holder. And it's not that hard. One night I'm teaching a class and I had this kid who was really a great student. His name was Cosmo. And for some reason, and Brian, I, I know you know this, that when you're in front of a group, I get it in my gut. You know stuff about the people you have no right to know. Like you don't know their name, you don't know their grade point average, but you know you could see stuff in them they can't see in themselves. So Cosmo had an interview for physical therapy school that afternoon. He's wearing a suit. And he's wearing leather shoes with leather soles, not, not good workout equipment. So I'm showing a video of a Shrita Furman setting all the world records. And I just got this feeling. I said, Cosmo, I bet you could set the world record for the most number of jumping jacks in a minute. I don't know why I said that. As a matter of fact, Brian, I didn't say it. It's, you, know, you know how when we're, it, like, when we're talking, it's not bias. It's through us. All of a sudden, you start just ranting. You know, it just, it's coming sure. through you. So I said, Cosmo, um, you know, when's the last time you did jumping jacks? And Cosmo was in good shape. Um, he said, no, I don't do jumping jacks. So I said, you know how to do them, right? So we made a big thing out of it. He comes to the front of the room. He takes his sport jacket off, you know, loosens his tie, and he does 110 jumping jacks in a minute. Hmm. And the world record was 103. And then the next week, we got all the video people. We get the people from the newspaper. They wrote a big article. The next week, he, he did, I think, 113. So the thing is, I mean, it's not that hard to set a world record. So, you know, 
Cottesmo didn't. So that's the fun thing about being in sports psychology is you see diamonds in the rough. You see ability in people that they don't even know. And most people have ability. They're not lacking the ability. They're blocking the ability. And I think for the rest of our podcast, I should just say, you're not lacking it. You're blocking it. You're not lacking it. You're blocking it. So you're blocking the ability. You're not, you have it. No, I'm, I, I'm dumb. No, no, no. You're, you're blocking your intelligence. You have intelligence. Well, oh, I'm not musical. You're blocking it. You're not lacking it. So that's what it's all about. So basically, this is what I want to do with people. I want them to figure out how do you draw. You, you've been drawing triangles your whole life. How, how many hours do you work out a week? Oh, I work out about 26, 30 hours a week. Yeah, but you're drawing triangles for 26, 30. Why don't we try to figure out, to, you know, no more triangles, more stars, you know? Better training techniques, better nutrition. I think this is what Tim, Fetter, Tim, Tim Ferriss is all about, by the way. I think he's trying to do this. Yeah, I think one, you know, one of the things I've heard you say countless times on Success Hotline, and I've just found it, the, the older I get, the more experience I get, the more I see it to be true, is life is not a talent game. Life is a strategy game. Where, where, where does this, where, when did you have this epiphany of, well, you can be, have, and do anything you want with the right time and the right strategy? Well, um, so let me try to reclaim myself. I think I try to impress you guys with how terrible a student I was. And I was a terrible student. And people said, well, why are you such a terrible student? I said, I didn't like that game. I didn't like, read it today. I'll test you tomorrow. Then you could forget it, forget it forever. Isn't that what school is all about? Read yeah. it tonight. Test you tomorrow. Then you could forget it for the rest. I mean, I don't understand in, cl in classes. Why don't you have cumulative tests? Okay, well, the first hour exam would be on the first third. The second hour exam would be on the second third. And the final would be on the third third. No. Isn't everything important? I, I don't want my doctor tested like that, you know? And um, so I was a pretty terrible student because I just didn't like that game. Uh, I never thought I was dumb or stupid. I just realized I was lazy. So then when I finally got a job as a, a teacher, and I finally re realized that if I learned something on Saturday, I could teach it on Monday, I don't think anybody for about a 20-year period, went to more seminars than I did. I went to seminar every weekend. I was going somewhere in the country to a seminar. And one weekend, I was at a seminar on NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming. And it was, uh, a matter of fact, it was a year-long training, and it was the first weekend training. It was one weekend a month for the whole year. And his name was Dr. Frank Statz, and I'm sitting in this hotel in New York City, and he says, you know, most people think they're lacking ability. They're not lacking ability. They're lacking strategy. They're not lacking a good memory. They're lacking the strategies on how to use your memory. And all of a sudden, for some reason, that clicked. I said, that's absolutely true. There are no dumb kids. There are just dumb school systems that aren't training kids right. And so then my whole life has become trying to show people evidence of how this is true. For example, so what I do just for fun is I try to figure out how could I, you know, most of the training takes a long time, but I try to show like instant training. So once I saw this, um, there used to be a whole field of people called sideshow people. Like before, when circuses used to be traveling circuses, and outside the circuses, you'd pay a, a quarter or something, 
and you could see the fat man or the rubber lady, or you could see the pig race, or you could see the strong man, or you could see a guy uh, doing some very strange things with a ice pick. So I'm just doing that to show you that this is a real ice pick. So I see this guy do this trick with an ice pick. His name was Todd Robbins. And so here's the big transition that happened that Saturday morning. I went from not can I or can't I, all of a sudden I said, of course I can. I just have to learn the how to. It's never a question of can or can't. Of course. Brian, if you took any even below able-bodied person and for the next six months they lived with you and they would train exactly the way they told you to train in six months, could they run a marathon if they did whatever you told them to do? Could they finish the marathon in six months? Yeah. You, I, would, I would say yes. 100%, right? Yes. Six months from now, could they do a full triathlon if they trained with you? Depending on where they're starting from, I would say yes. Yeah. So that's it. You know, you have the ability. All you're lacking is a strategy. So Todd Robbins does this thing with an ice pick. And I said, oh, see, the problem with being a college professor nowadays is that our competition isn't the other great college professors. Our competition is the internet. Hmm. I mean, how could I do anything nearly as interesting as the internet and the kids have their iPhones right with them? So I'm always looking for things to do in front of the class that they cannot not look at it. Now, that's a weird sentence. They cannot not look at me. You know, and I could do something in front of them that's not going to happen on the internet. I could kill myself right in front of them. They've never seen that before. So they can't possibly. So I don't lead, uh, like right now, I'm making a big build up to this. In class, I don't make a big build up. I just start doing it. And all of a sudden, people do one or two things. They go, they start looking at me or they take out their cell phones and start recording it. So I saw Todd Robbins do this. And then I got his email address. I emailed him and I emailed him and I emailed him. I think I emailed him 46 times. You know, I said, I want to learn, I want to learn, it's called Blockhead. I want to learn the trick Blockhead. And finally, after 46 non-responses, he finally said, yeah, I live near Hell's Kitchen. I live right by Port Authority. Why don't you come and see me this Friday? Didn't charge me a cent. And he taught me the strategy on how to do this. So watch closely. So in case you think it's a trick, there it is right there. You now, just, I would you just, you just put an ice pick in, in all the way, into, uh, uh, an eight-inch ice pick all the way into your nose. Say it again? You just took an eight-inch ice pick and put it all the way into your nose. Yeah. Now, is that disgusting? Yes. Does it prove a point? He taught me how to do it, and I did it. He taught me how to train myself. So that's what I'm talking about. Uh, Brian, when I was out in Arizona, I did the thing with the arrow, right? Did I break the arrow with my neck? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so anybody – now, can anybody, can anybody do this? Yes. Don't do it because you need the right training. You need the right yes. training. Yes. I'm sure Brian is in yes. great shape, but if he gets into Jason's wheelchair, he's not going to be able to go, go too far because he hasn't been trained how to use a wheelchair. Is that true? Very true. Yeah. So that's, you know, when you get to my age, you think about dying. And I think on my tombstone, I just want one word, training, training. Training is the most exciting word in the world. You could be trained to do anything. And that's what Brian and I and eventually Jason are in the business of doing it. Because I hope you don't believe us. Because if you believed us, we would be out of a job. 
Most people don't believe they could be trained. Anybody could become an A student. That's not hard. You just find an A. Now, I'm not talking about people with, you know, uh, psycho psychological or neurological disabilities. I'm assuming normalcy. And most people, what's their biggest problem? Laziness. It's all right to be lazy. As a matter of fact, it's great to be lazy. Because most of us, our only problem is laziness. That's the only thing that's keeping us from doing great things. And it's not because you're a bad person. It's because you haven't been inspired yet. So, Brian, you have gone through one of the most amazing physical transformations. What, what, what clicked? What went from 230 pounds to you look like you're, what, 157 now? <laughs> 240 to 180, let's call it that. Okay. So what caused, what, what, what's the click that, that caused that? Uh, I remember it was one of my mentors, Dr. Declan Connolly came up to the, he was an exercise physiologist, phys ed professor at the university of Vermont. And he was my mentor at the university of Vermont. My, my, he was my advisor. So when I was a high school AD in Vermont, I had him come up to speak to our coaches, athletes, and parents. And he said, you know, Irish guy, Mr. Kane, I'm going to bring my bike. So make sure that you find a bike because we're going to get a ride because where you live up there near Lake Memphis, Magog in Newport, Vermont, it's a beautiful place. And I've always wanted to ride. So we're going to get some riding in. So go dust yours off. So I went and found a bike and I started to ride like three days before he shows up. I didn't even have bike shorts yet. And we make it about three miles and I got to stop. And he, pull, he wheels around, sees that I've stopped, comes back. He's like, did your chain fall off? Did you lose a tire? I said, no, I lost a lung. And he goes, Mr. Kane, look. He said, the thing is, if you want to be an influential coach and you want to be able to inspire or impact people and these athletes that you're working with, he goes, you got to walk the walk. You can't just talk the talk. He goes, yeah. right now you're out of shape. And he said to me, he said, well, a line that I will use in the right setting at the right time. He said, Mr. Kane, leaders aren't fought. And right now you're fought and you don't have any energy. People are going to laugh you out of the room if you're trying to work with professional athletes. Yeah. And that changed my life because I said, he's right. Someone just hit me in the face with it. Brutal honesty. It's true. But now what? And then he put me on an exercise routine and a nutrition routine. And I literally ate the same thing at the same time. I called eating on the odds, 7, 9, 11, 1, 3, 5, 7. I ate every two hours, seven hours a day, right? Seven times a day, seven days a week. I was at a deficit of about 1,000 calories a day of energy in versus what I was expending. And the weight went away. Within a year, I got down to where I wanted to be. And I've fluctuated since then. But now that I have the right training and the right education, I know how to maintain where I want to be. Do you ever see anybody from the old days and they don't recognize you? <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah. yeah. Clients who actually hired me, yeah. who I've gone up to them in the past, you know, and I've gone up to them recently and be like, Hey, how you doing, man? Good to see you. And he's like, have we met? Yeah, man. Brian Kane. Oh, I'm like, he's like, I don't recognize you. Is it the beard? He goes, no, you lost a human being. Like, oh, yeah. Yeah. Your, your waist went from what to what? Uh, it was funny. We talked about this earlier today. I was, I was, uh, 44 at one point I was driving to the airport in Burlington, Vermont. I used to live three hours from the airport. And I remember driving down there and my button popped off my pants and hit the windshield and landed on my dashboard. I had 42 inch pants on. So I had to stop at the TJ Maxx by the airport to get a pair of 44 inch slacks to go fly to California where I was working that weekend. And my wife yesterday for father's day, got me a pair of shorts and I, she's bringing them back today because there were 32 and they were too big. Yeah. So your story is a story about a setback is a setup for a comeback. 100%. And it's yeah, 100%. So any questions about what we've been doing so far? Yeah, I think you know, one of the questions is you've talked about the mindset shift of, of you can be having do anything you want with the right strategy. 
And I still think a lot of athletes, and you see it every day with the college athletes at Montclair State and mm. the people who, who you're speaking with and working with, is a lot of athletes and high performers, they're still putting a lot of the time into training their bodies. And I don't know why they're not is putting as much time or making even any effort into training their minds. Why, why do you think that is that people are still so focused on the body versus the, the mental side? And it's like we said before, the transition from going from not lifting weights to lifting weights, from not doing conditioning to doing conditioning. I mean, this is a slow process. We're changing a whole culture. Mm. And, uh, you know, it's going to be amazing when we find out that the greatest pharmacy in the world is up here. You know, the, you know, when we just have to figure out how to unlock it. There's a, an unbelievable, unbelievable. Did I send you the book, Brian? Breath? The book called Breath? No, I'll check it out on Amazon, though. No, I sent it to you. I sent it to you. Uh, I hope I sent it to the right address. James Nestor, the next big breakthrough in sports psychology is doing breathing techniques. Um, and nobody has been, uh, you know, there are a lot of books on breathing and breath techniques, but there are all these yogis and they're talking about ki and chi and prana and pranayama. It's so weird. James Nestor makes it real. And I sent you the book Breath. It's um, an unbelievable book. And so once we realize that in, um, you know, the seminars I teach on relaxation, stress reduction, uh, one of the first thing I say, you know, you're not going to die. You're going to kill yourself hmm. because most of the people die in America from stress related diseases. And we just don't know how to deal with stress. So suppose um, you were locked in a room for the pandemic and somebody gave you um, a bunch of dumbbells, but they said, you know, uh, you could only use the dumbbells with one arm. And Brian says, okay, I'll, only, I'll, I'll build up my right arm. So after being locked up for six months, he has this unbelievable right arm. It's like Rod Laver, if you remember the old uh, tennis guy. You have this huge right arm and this underdeveloped atrophied left arm. Why? Because you work the right arm out. That's The analogy is that's how we are. We have a built-in stress response. Hans Selyer figured that out. And we have a built-in relaxation response. Herbert Benson from Harvard figured that out. But what we've done is we overuse our stress response. And anybody really, really, really interested in the stress response, you got to check this guy out. Maybe the best lecturer in the country, Dr. Robert Sapolsky from Stanford. S-A-P-O-L-S-K-Y. Fabulous. He has, he has hundreds of hours on YouTube. And his whole thing is studying baboons for stress. And so... We have overdeveloped our workouts for stress and underdeveloped our workouts for relaxation. So we have to get up to speed. We have to start practicing relaxation. We have to start practicing breathing correctly. The average American breathes like 17 to 25 times a minute. We should be breathing 7, 8, 10, 12 times a minute, you know. So get the book, uh, James Nestor, N-E-S-T-E-R, Breath. And hopefully you have it in the mail, Brian. Well, Dr. Gilbert, I know on Success Hotline, you'll often do like a like a mini weekend seminar. So you've yeah. done the stress management and relaxation seminar. Right now, you're doing the 7C challenge. Yeah. If we come back to Success Hotline, you know, you've been doing this since 1992. So you, you were doing this before cell phones. You were doing this before DVDs. I mean, and now there's Twitter and there's TikTok and there's Instagram. What do you think it is about the three-minute 
concise, well-crafted message that has sustained for so long throughout all these different technologies that have showed up that people still call. But it's not that popular. I mean, I have thousands of people calling me. I don't have millions of people calling me. I mean, I'm nowhere near Joe Rogan, that's for sure. Um, But it's like, it's like the stuff we do is like, we're like boutiques, you know, we're not, we're not a major, major big department store. We're, We're boutiques. And there are only a, a very, very select group of people who are going to be interested in what we're doing because the culture is not there yet, you know, uh, which is fine with me. So um, the right people call success hotline, the people like you that are going to change the world. The person, the coach that just wants to win is not going to call success hotline because one of the things I talk about on success hotline, it's much better to go all, and, all out and lose and hold back and win. The average coach doesn't want to hear that. It's much better to go all out and lose and hold back and win. But, you know, um, I'm very, very happy the way Success Hotline is. Um, and I've met some unbelievable callers uh, through it. And I've been able to keep in touch with my students. But I'm not diminishing, I might be diminishing the popularity, but I'm not diminishing the value of it. I, I, you know, the whole thing is I'm looking for the best techniques in the world on stress reduction, on relaxation, on creativity, on peak performance. And that's what keeps me going because I know I don't know the best techniques. I know the better techniques. I don't know the best techniques. You know, and, and I know you mentioned that you've, the success hotline allows you to stay in contact with, with your students. And, you know, I think that's, that's, if I look back at two days that, that changed my life, maybe if you were to say three days, it changed my life. That one I mentioned with Dr. Declan Connolly, where we were on the bike ride, the one where I heard you speak in March of 2006 at the leadership conference in the day I picked up Heads Up Baseball by Ken Revisa at a Barnes & Noble on 600 West Boylston Street, where? Boston, Massachusetts. And, you know, I remember when you, when you spoke to us that day in Vermont, you said, it's the start that stops most people. And this isn't the end of our time together at the end of the seminar when you got done speaking for 90 minutes and blew the walls down. It was incredible. You said, this is the beginning of us working together. And you said, this is the whole group. And you said, I put together the success hotline where if you call, you can, you, you will get a little, a lot, and it's better to do a little, a lot than a lot, a little. So I've called success hotline most days since 2006. And I know that I know how much it has changed my life. I know how much it has provided for me. I know how how powerful, impactful it's been. How often do you actually get to hear from listeners who have been impacted? And are there any stories from listeners or callers of Success Hotline that stick out to you that are saying this is this is part of why I keep doing this? Well, every day, to tell you the truth, I mean, I've had um, people tell me I saved their lives. Uh, you know, they were suicidal in the middle of the night and they called the sex success hotline. They just said the right thing at the right time. Um, and then, um, somebody like Mark Lassini, who's a joy in my life, Mark Lassini. Imagine if you and I were close to each other when you, you know, if I were teaching at the university of Vermont, we'd, we'd see each other every day, every day, right? You'd be, you were on fire with this stuff. Mark Lassini's on fire. I mean, if I speak to him once a day, that's a bad day. I speak to him several times a day. And, you know, um, when you get a little older, you worry about, um, about the hereafter. And I'm not worried about the hereafter. As long as Brian Kane or Mark Lassini is around, I'm still alive, you know? And that's the truth. Because I never got married. I never had any kids. But my, the thing I'm leaving behind is my information, my stories. And as long as I pass on my stories, my life makes sense. If I don't pass on my information, my strategies, my stories, my life doesn't make sense. So yesterday was Father's Day, 
and uh, never having been married and never having any children, um, you'd imagine that I never get a call on Father's Day. I always get one call. When I was teaching, oh, this is about six, seven years ago, I have this kid in my class on the basketball team, six foot 10, um, looks like a basketball player, not a great basketball player, went to eight high schools. Mm. That's how much discipline problem was. Went to, you know, St. Anthony's in Jersey City uh, with Bobby Hurley, the best sure. basketball coach in the country. He got thrown out of that place. Goes to three colleges. And, you know, he looks like a pro basketball player, but he's not. And then I knew there was, I knew, I knew there was something in him as a speaker. And so I have him speaking in my class every day. I'd have him come to my class. I'd have him come to my classes when he wasn't even in my class. And he told me that sometimes that he just wanted to leave. He wanted me to leave him alone. He's the best speaker I've ever seen in my life. Mm. You know, he puts me to shame. He calls me every Father's Day to thank him. See, and I, I said, you know, Michael, I should be thanking you because without you, my life wouldn't make sense. The fact that you're, you know, that I started something, you know, and it's not genetic, it's intellectual. The fact that you're going to be passing on and I'm teaching you and, and that makes my life make sense. So that's what's fun that, um, you know, to, to see things. He didn't even realize he had this skill. Another um, person I, I uh, uh, how would you say, spotted was one of our other basketball players, uh, John Paul Gonzalez. Now, you might not know the name John Paul Gonzalez. He's making more money than just about anybody in professional speaking going around the world now. But he's the one that invented the term uh, all in. He was a speaker for the Giants way back the last time they won the Super Bowl. And uh, he spoke to them right before one of their games against the Jets. And he said, you know, he gave this whole analogy about being at a casino. And if you knew you had a great hand, you'd push all the, all the chips all in. He invented that term. He's not the first one ever to use it, but he's the one that popularized it. And, you know, and if it weren't for me and having him come to my classes, he would never be a speaker. And for me, there is nothing more fun than researching how people could do something extraordinary with their life. I mean, what could be more fun? Um, I don't think I told you guys this. Um, this past weekend, I wrote a book. No, uh, I know that. Yeah, I wrote a book. It's called Dr. Gilbert's One Word Book on How to Be Extremely Successful. So the name of the book is Dr. Gilbert's One Word Book on How to Be Extremely Successful. The reason I wrote the book in one weekend is because there's only one word in the book on how to be extremely successful in business, in sales, in sports, in school, in parenting. What's the one word? It's a trick. Dr. Gilbert's one word book on how to be extremely successful. The one word is extreme. You've got to be extreme. So let's go back and forth, you and me, Brian, okay? I'll name an extreme athlete, then you name extreme athlete. Number one, Dan Gable. Beat Dan Gable in terms of extreme. Who do you got? David Goggins. David Goggins. Uh, Steve Prefontaine. Jason Fowler. Oh, you got to tell me more about that. Uh, Whitney Houston. Well, I mean, we're not talking, we're talking about in any area of life. Whitney Houston. Bill Gates. Yeah. So that's what we're talking about. All these people, you know, they, you know, if you want to do, um, I was at a book, uh, a book signing in Princeton, New Jersey, and an extreme athlete was there. He was an All-American to Princeton, and he got Princeton into the Final Four. His name was Bill Bradley. 
Mm. He was an All-American. And then he didn't go immediately to the NBA because he won something called the Rhodes Scholarship. So he goes to Oxford University for a couple of years, comes back, plays for the Knicks, wins a world championship with the Knicks in Basketball Hall of Fame. And then he's out of pro basketball, so he decides to become a United States senator. So I, so it's a book signing. So I buy his book. So while he's signing my book, he has to talk to me. You know, he can't get away from me. I said, Senator Bradley, what is the most inspirational quote you ever heard? He said, well, when I was in high school, my high school coach said, Bill, when you're not training, somebody else is. And when you play him, he's going to beat you. And so that's extreme. So you got to be extreme in terms of the hours, like the 10,000 hour rule, which isn't the correct rule. By the way, we should have a moment of silence. Mm. The great Anders Erickson died uh, the other day. And, you know, he wasn't a sports psychologist, but he knew more about sports psychology than any person on the planet. Anders Erickson, Florida State, his book is called Peak, P-E-A-K, Deliberate Practice, Read Everything He's Done. So that's the whole thing. So start, we talked about strategies, but one of the strategies is, you know, like Dan Gable, let me tell you, um, I was a collegiate wrestler at UMass, and it's very strange to have a person your own age that is your idol, you know? And in my generation, Dan Gable, even though he's still in college, so Gable went on to win the Olympic gold medal, but not only did he win the Olympic gold medal, nobody scored a point on him. That would be like throwing three no-hitters in the World Series, you know? So he's giving a talk at Hamilton High School, and I went to the talk. And I waited for everybody to leave. I didn't want to embarrass myself. So Jesse organized it there and Dan Gable and me. I said, Dan, I introduced myself. I said, could I ask you a kind of strange question? And he said, no. He said, I'm sure I heard it before. I said, no, I don't think you have. I said, how come you've won everything in your life? You were an NCAA champ. You were an Olympic champ. And I didn't win anything. He said, where did you go to school? I said, UMass. He said, well, I went to Iowa State. He said, um, when did you work out? I said, 4 to 6.30. He said, yeah, we did too. He said, what did you do at the end of practices? I said, well, about 20, 25 minutes of conditioning. He said, yeah, we did too. He said, what did you do at the end of practice? I said, well, to tell you the truth, Dan, I crawled back to my locker, took a shower, and went to eat. He said, see, that's the difference. When practice was over, I went over, and because of weight loss and wrestling, I put the heat up as high I could go in the wrestling room. Then I went back to my locker, just like you did, and I put a rubber suit on and I put a hoodie and sweatpants over the rubber suit and I got my jump rope and I went back into the wrestling room when everybody already left and I used to jump rope until I passed out. Now he said, I never passed out, but my goal was to jump rope until I passed out. So while he's saying, and I went back to jump rope and I passed out. So I'm saying Dan Gable is jumping rope until he passes out and Rob Gilbert is eating a pork chop. You see the difference? You know, I'm in a dining hall eating a pork chop and this guy is because he knew he was going to have to beat a Russian. So he was a maniac. He was extreme. And I was average, even below average. So that's what I mean by extreme. You have to be extreme. You have to do something that people won't even consider doing. Like studying eight hours every Saturday or something like that. I mean, you have to, and I'm not saying to extreme. Extreme is fun. Because when you're getting to the highest levels of yourself, it's fun. When you're breaking down barriers, it's fun. It really, really is fun. Did you ever see anybody, I mean, even the people in five, six hours, seven hours in the marathon, they cross the finish line, they're jumping up and down. They're all excited because it's fun to push yourself beyond all limits. Mm. So that's the book. 
can you buy the book? No, you don't have to. You already know what the book's about. It's about extreme. <laughs> Speaking of books, Dr. Gilbert, I know you've got Gilbert on greatness. You've got, well, if you want to win tomorrow, read this book today. Anything over my shoulder there, Brian? Yeah, well, well, hang on. We'll get there. And, uh, and yeah. you know, the, the, the book, Good to Great Golf, uh, I'm reading right now. But over yeah. your shoulder, I see the 1% intention, yeah. which you're actually one of the main characters in that book. Yeah. But, uh, you know, so, so you've written these books. And I know um, one of the things that you, you did that I've, I've got that I'm not sure if, if people know it exists or you're a part of it is bits and pieces. Would you talk a little bit about bits and pieces? And for the listeners, um, you can find, if you go to Amazon and type in Rob Gilbert bits and pieces, you can find these on there. I've, they're, they're fantastic. And, and I use them. I, I touch them at least weekly, if not daily, in terms of looking for stories and strategies and tips and quotes. Uh, but could you talk a little bit about bits and pieces? Once again, this is serendipity. Um, I'm going to, this is going to be a, an elongated story, but it just goes to show how, you know, when you're at the right, the right place at the right time, you're doing the right thing, this things just magical happen. So bits and pieces uh, came out 13 times a year. It's a little, a little booklet. It's all quotes and stories. You know, Brian and I aren't into quoting research. We're into telling stories, you know? Uh, and because stories are so powerful, see stories stick and facts fade, stories mm -hmm. stick and facts fade. And what is a story? A story is something about the past you tell in the present that will be remembered in the future. So I love bits and pieces magazine. And one day, um, I am interviewed for my hotline. Now, remember I told you, I, I, I never had any financial motivation to do my hotline. So one day I'm doing a talk and uh, I think for Nabisco and one of the guys there, I talk about my hotline and he tells his wife about it. His wife works for national public radio. She works for a show called marketplace. So she interviews me about, uh, about uh, success hotline, you know, about a 90 second interview. Somebody from Bits and Pieces is listening. Oh, no, no. Somebody from the Bergen Record newspaper is listening. They call me up. They do this huge article on Success Hotline. And somebody from Bits and Pieces reads the article, invites me over. And eventually, they hired me to be the editor of my favorite magazine. You know, I mean, you just can't make that stuff up. I know that was kind of a uh, strange, circuitous story. So anyway, um, I. I used to spend $10,000 a year on books for story. I, I have the, the biggest library of quotes, stories. I pay $275 a month just to keep this stuff in storage because I can't get rid of it. I love it too much. So every uh, month I had it came out with a magazine and I love doing it. And unfortunately they sold the magazine to somebody in Chicago and they didn't retain me as the editor, but I was, I had, I think eight good years as editor of bits and pieces, but there our books called Best of Bits and Pieces, More of the Best of Bits and Pieces, even more of the best of best of Bits and Pieces, and the best stories in the world are there. And then I can confirm that those are the best stories in the world. You wrote it. And I think all the two other, two other guaranteed books that people want to pick up, Gilbert on Greatness, If You Want to Win Tomorrow, read this book tonight. Definitely mainstays, books that I, that I will go through at least once a year. 
um, books that have shaped my career, shaped my life and, and, and the work that I do in mental performance. Dr. Gilbert, obviously with thousands of messages, you know, it can be, it can be hard for you to choose like a single favorite. And, and I may, you may have just given it to us with the one word book of extreme, but what, what are some of the, of the success hotline messages or the stories that you've told that really stuck out to you that you feel like these are the best of the best? Well, I think you and I are on the same page. I think if you want to tell an impactful story, short beats long, you know, and specific beats general. So, and real beats fictitious. So how is this for a story? Um, a matter of fact, this was a hotline message uh, yesterday. Uh, in 1924, the Olympics uh, were in um, Paris, France. And way back in 1924, you didn't take a supersonic jet. You had to take a, an ocean liner. And it took like a week to get, you know, to Europe. And Bill Havens was the best stand-up canoeist in the world. And his wife was pregnant. And his doctor, her doctor, told Bill that she is going to give birth right during the Olympics, right when he's going to be competing. So the wife pleaded with him to go, said, well, we'll have another child, but you'll never have another Olympics. He said, no, I'm going to be with you. And he was with his wife during the Olympics. 28 years later, the Olympics are in Helsinki, Finland. And an American wins the stand-up canoe race. And he immediately goes to Western Union to sell it, send the telegram. Dear Dad, can't wait to come home to bring you the gold medal you should have won 28 years ago. Thanks for staying with me when I was born. Your loving son, Frank. 28 years later, his son won the gold medal in the same event. Happy Father's Day. 1960, the Winter Olympics were in Lake uh, Squaw Valley. Ten days before the Olympics began, the men's hockey team made its last cut, and they cut this guy from Minnesota. He went home, not a happy camper, and he and his son, and he and his father are watching the finals of the Olympics. The United States, Soviet Union, the United States wins. The United States wins, and he sees all of his buddies jumping around, and his father says, well, Herbie, I guess the coach cut the right guy. I mean, how much could that hurt? Well, Herbie, I guess the coach, you know, Dad, I don't have a gold medal. Now you got to do this to me. 1980, Lake Placid, New York. United States four, Soviet Union three. And two days later, the hockey team won the gold medal and the coach got his gold medal. His name was Herbie, Herbie Brooks. Same guy, same guy. When she was four years old, she was in a wheelchair. She had polio. Her doctors told her she would never walk again. She had 21 brothers and sisters and all she wanted to do was play basketball with her brothers and sisters. The greatest day of her life was when she wheeled her wheelchair into church and she got out of the wheelchair with her crutches and cane. She walked down to her seats and everybody applauded. Well, she went extreme on her physical therapy and eventually she got out of her wheelchair, got to the crutches, got to walking, and she started playing high school basketball 
when Ed Temple from East Tennessee State said, Wilma, you're not a basketball player, you're a runner. 1956, she gets a bronze medal in the Olympics. 1960 in Rome, she gets three gold medals. Check her out, the most beautiful running form. This girl that had polio is the most beautiful runner I've ever seen in my life. And then when she's interviewed, she said, you're four years old, you're in a wheelchair, and now you're an Olympic champion. How did it happen? Well, when I was a little kid, my doctors told me I would never walk again. My mother told me I would, so I chose to believe my mother. After I tell that story, I think I could die right now. That is the perfect story. You know that, Brian? It's the perfect story. My mother, my, my doctors told me I would never knock again. My mother told me I would. I believe my mother. So do you know what story I'm going to tell next, Brian? I know it's reverberating in our head. I the do not know. I don't know. About the wolves? About the wolves? You know, oh, about yeah. the two wolves? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, give it to us. Yeah, yeah no, you tell it. Do you know it or you want me to tell it? Well, I think I, I think I know it. Let's see. Yeah, we'll tell it. So many years ago, there was a young boy and he was confused because he had these conflicting, conflicting desires inside of him. And he wanted to train, but he also wanted to sit on the couch and watch TV. He wanted to, to be a great athlete, but he also loved to play video games. And he was conflicted. He didn't know what to do. And he had these two voices inside of him pulling him in different directions. And one day he went out and he sought out an old, wise Indian chief. And he said, Indian chief, I feel like I have these two sources inside of me, one pulling me to be great and to pursue my best. They're holding me back and keeping me from doing what I want to do. And the Indian chief said, oh, you're talking about the two wolves. He said, two wolves? What, what, what two wolves are you talking about, great chief? And the great chief said, look, inside of all of us, there are two wolves. There's a wolf built for others and a wolf that thinks about us. There's a wolf that is helping us to have the energy that it takes to do whatever it takes to succeed. And there's the wolf that holds us back because it tells us that we're not good enough. We call that the green wolf to get you to go and the red wolf to get you to slow and stop. And every day, those two wolves fight inside of us. And the young boy looked in the end chief and he said, well, wh- which one's going to win the fight? The Indian chief leaned in closer and he said, the one that you feed, the one that you train, that's the one who will win the fight. Is that the story you were referring to? God, you told that story so well. (laughs) You told that story so well. That was great. But but that wasn't the story you were referring to, though. Exactly exactly what it is. Okay, good. All right. I was hoping I didn't didn't let my teammates down. And that's exactly where we're living right now. Yeah. You know, who are you going to feed? We yeah. have some group of people that say, the scientists say, wear a mask, socially isolate. You know, we other people don't wear a mask. Don't so, you know, what are you going to believe? It's mm-hmm. craziness. Um, yesterday, I did a radio show, and they wanted to talk about stress during the pandemic, especially with kids who are athletes and this and that. And uh, what I talked about is, you know, they're talking especially about seniors. And um, and I said, you know, the, the, the thing with seniors is senior i'm talking about not seniors like me seniors in high school is you know this isn't like a death in the family you know it's like people oh it's like somebody died it's so sad i said no it's like a robbery you know these kids were building up freshman sophomore junior senior year and they're robbed of their prom they're robbed of their state tournament they're robbed of that you know and then i i said you know you have a choice between during this time are you going to be bitter or are you going to get better 
because we're against a fearsome opponent. Then I told the story about how in olden days, I told uh, uh, about the sideshows. And part of the sideshow used to be a wrestling beer. They actually did this. They had a wrestling beer. Of course, he was muzzled and his claws were taken out. But the beer would actually wrestle with human beings. And, you know, one guy wrestled and lost to the beer. And his son said, Dad, what did you learn from wrestling in the beer? He said, well, the thing I learned is you don't quit when you feel like quitting. You quit when the beer wants to quit. And so that's about the pandemic. We can, I, I just get the feeling that on January or June 22nd, 2020, I think we're giving up. I think too many people were desensitized. I think this is a marathon, not a sprint. And we're fighting the beer. We're fighting this virus. And we can't quit until the virus quits. We can't say this is over. And I think our country's saying it's over. Oh, let's open up everything. You know, I, it's just the strangest of times. And so many stories, you know, you know, what is a myth? A myth is something that's never happened that is always happening. Like, did David actually beat Goliath? Who knows? But are David's beating Goliath every day? Of course. So let me tell the David and Goliath story. The night before David was going to go on the field of battle and fight Goliath, his three best friends came to his tent to say goodbye because this was going to be it. He was going to get killed the next day. So David is getting ready to go to sleep, and he notices a lot of gloom and doom. And David says, well, what's wrong with you guys? Come on. He said, David, this is the last time we're ever going to see you. He said, oh, come on. There is no way he's going to kill me. There's no way I could lose. He said, David, how could you be so sure? And he picked up his slingshot and he picked up his rocks. He said, I have my slingshot. I have my rocks. Have you seen him? He's so big. How could I possibly miss him? He's so big. How could I miss? So when you're fighting Mike Tyson, you could say he's fearsome or, you know, there's some weak point there and Buster Douglas found it. One of the biggest upsets of all time, right? 42 to one underdog, Tokyo, Japan. And they, in Vegas, they wouldn't even let you bet on the fight because they thought it was such a landslide. Buster Douglas versus Mike Tyson. And 10 days before the fight, Buster Douglas lost his mother. Right? Yep. She, she passed away, I think, of a stroke. And he went out there and just ended up fighting better. And one of the things you say all the time on Success Hotline is the best, the best fighter doesn't win. The best team doesn't win. It's the one who fights the best. It's the one who plays the best. That's right. And that's what sports psychology is all about. I mean, just because you're not, the United States had no right being on the ice against the Soviet Union. Ten days before their hockey game, they lost to Russia 10 to 3. And one of my friends, Mike Tully, was at the game. He was a sports writer. He said it could have very easily been 20 to nothing. He said it wasn't even close. Hmm. Ten days later, everything, the world shook. The best team never wins. It's the team who plays the best. Do a little a lot, not a lot a little. Dr. Gilbert, this is the first time you have been on the podcast, but not the last time. This is not the end of our podcast. This is the start of a journey for our listeners to go with you day by day on this marathon. Listeners, Success Hotline, 973-743-4690, about 7.30 a.m. Eastern Time. Dr. Gilbert will update the message. After he leaves his three-minute message, you get a chance to leave him a message, which I highly encourage you to introduce yourself, let him know what you're taking out of the hotline, and let them know that you got the success hotline from the Brian Kane Mental Performance Mastery Podcast. Dr. Gilbert, thank you for being with us. Until then, don't count the days, make the days count. We'll see you next time. 
Thanks for listening to the Brian Kane Mental Performance Podcast on the Ironclad Content Network. If you liked the show, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Brian Kane Peak. I'll see you next time.